be shift boss. Okay, radio check. Yeah, radio's working fine. Yeah, copy all personnel. Yeah, copy, mate. Did a tear in the vet bag. Yeah, stitcher up there, thanks, mate. Yeah, right, eh? Copy that. All right, we're well, we're in comfortable territory now, mate. There's that. You don't have to read bloody any announcements. You don't Good. have to quote figures. We're I just up. stick to my favourite topic. What yourself? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've bloody we've. It's late Friday, Harvey, so we've cracked a stub. Cheers. This is cheers, mate. Right, the Lucas Robinson story. Have you been? Um, you're not shitting bricks like um Pete was. Pete was pretty nervous in the lead up. Was for he? His yeah, thing. he was. Uh, well, that's because he was so awestruck by you. I mean, what? he's your number one fan. <laughs> He'd been listening to you for so long. He, you've actually inspired him to, you know uproot himself from Canberra and come and move to Western Australia. Oh, I yeah, mean, well, I think he was the same when he met the missus at the Christmas party because he was uh, he's, he, he, he felt like was he a fan her. of uh, her bloody podcast episodes he was having. A bloody, she was like, oh, this one American guy was just like <laughs> half obsessed with me. Yeah. <laughs> no, it would have been like me sitting across the table from Matthew Pavlich or something like that, man. It would have been. I'm halfway there, myself. Matthew, Michael. <laughs> we're halfway there. Well, we're going to do, well, do the equivalent as we did with Pete the other week. Good. If anyone wants to get a bit of um, – um, insight into the American markets and the American, especially the the Texas energy space. Uh, have a listen to me arm with Peter Morris from Corporate Storytime the other week. Absolutely cracking interview. Very interesting, but very knowledgeable about the energy sector and the bloody billions of dollars that get invested in America. They're huge, so I highly recommend. And we're gonna we're doing the equivalent for you today, mate. The backstory. Okay. okay. How we've, I suppose we talked about um, how you started this business and you're absolutely bloody flying at the moment in the investor relations space. But I want to talk about yourself, how you got into the finance industry yeah. back, in, back in the day. Yeah. Where did you come out of the womb, mate? Where did it all start? <laughs> well, I, I actually live um, in Subiaco and the operations that we've got, the office that we've got is that we're up recording this on is also in Subiaco. So I live about 250 metres away from where I was born at King Edward Hospital. Yeah. Um, and my parents are both from New South Wales. So that's something that we have sort of in right, common, common, common yeah. <laughs> bloodlines from New South Wales. Um, and my father uh, grew up in a in a country town called Forbes or on a farm near a country town called Forbes. Uh, he had ambitions to be a farmer, but he was one of five kids and the farm was a bit hard work and he noticed that my grandfather was having a bit of a hard time making a profit. So he thought about a career that would allow him to work outside but also use his brain because he's got a fairly strong intellectual capacity. He should have started drilling holes at Forbes. That's just down the road from yeah, Alcane. That's <laughs> right. Corn, so they should have buggered <laughs> the farm right. and start drilling holes. That's right. In any case, <laughs> he decided that geology would be something that he'd, he'd, he'd like to try and he, he, he went to university, ended up getting a job with um, SO, uh, who everyone knows is a um, oil and gas company, but back in the 70s actually had a fairly substantial mineral exploration program as well uh and and it was you know spent a bit of time in broken hill but they ended up finding himself in the i think mid early 70s in perth and has never left and mm-hmm. my mother is a teacher uh and she came over with him and she's she's you know ba- basically both of them are, are, are rusted on west australians now uh, so uh, my sister and i were born here and and 
Perth and, and we've lived more or less our whole lives here with the exception of one year where dad got a job in PNG and we lived in a, um, a town called Lay in PNG in the 1980s, which was pretty interesting. I'd always like to have gone back there, but I, yeah, right. I haven't been back. Um, but, um, which, um, which mine was that? Was it, um, port- it was expiration. So, yeah, right. so he's an expiration geologist. Um, and he, you know, bounced around uh, a lot of you know, big companies, and and more recently has been working. Uh, and so he's still uh, he's in his seventies now, but he still works full time for FMG, and he spent a lot of time in the early days of FMG, exploring for the iron ore deposits that they now mine. So um, well, I'd like to see his little share incentive scheme that they'd be about if he's been there that long. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think he was the twentieth employee of the group, so they were is very, that right? very small. Now, that is yeah. claim to fame. Mm. Yeah, right. So, so where, where did the the geology and all that? Growing up and moving, or you moved around once, but it um, yeah. did it rub off to get into yeah, mining well, can, or equities so or where did I that can remember start? my father um, at one point he he decided that he might like to try uh, this public company space himself, and this was um, in early 1987. Uh, he started the the process of That's trying to raise born. some money, yep. yeah, raise some money for a company that had some exploration projects in Western Australia that were prospective for gold and nickel, I think. And and I remember waking up, and I was so I must be ten years older than you, Matt, because I remember waking up. Uh, you wouldn't age, think, no, you, <laughs> you wouldn't know. Years have been kind, eh? Because <laughs> I can remember waking up as a ten-year-old and hearing that Wall Street had crashed, and all I could think was I didn't know what the first. Oh, thing that's that the meant. eighty-seven crash. Yeah, that yeah. was on that Madoff thing yeah. last night. Yeah. And all I could think was there was a street somewhere that where a, a big wall had fallen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and that so is I went out. I went out. Of, uh, the, the, this was on the clock radio that, that sort of went off by my bedside table. And I went out and told my, my yeah, this is obviously a long time before there was sophisticated communication systems like, you know, internet or whatever. And I went out and told my mum and dad that apparently a street with a big wall in America had fallen down or crashed. <laughs> I've, just, I've got the and caption my- <laughs> for the episode thumbnail sorted. Yeah, beautiful. Um, and so, yeah, that was when I first sort of saw um a little bit of an insight as to how these small west australian junior mining companies sort of operate um suffice to say i think my dad got a few sort of battle scars from that decided it was a lot better going working for an exploration team where it was embedded in inside a large company with large budgets and profit and the bottom line and all that kind of stuff rather than trying to you know um, live hand to mouth um, in the sort of junior exploration space, um, but yeah, that's sort of when I first started thinking about well, learning a little bit about how public companies worked, and then I, I went I went through school and and you know, I don't know, you're 17 years old, you got to come up with something to, <laughs> to, to sort of write down in the column of what you want to do at university, and I decided to do commerce. Went to UWA straight out of school in the in the uh, early to mid 90s, uh, and sort of you know farted my way through that degree. <laughs> had a good had a good time. Yeah, had a good time. Net, a lot of networking. Too good a time. Um, but yeah, you know, somehow or other, came out with a piece of paper, you know, saying that I had a degree, and and then I, I was sort of. Um, involved in tennis and um, and someone at my tennis club, Eve Broadley, um, was a partner at um, a stockbroking firm that now no longer exists, but it was called Hogan and Partners. And I just 
badgered the shit out of Eve to give me a chance, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> she gave me a chance. I sat down at the desk um, with, um, so Terry Hogan was the, uh, the the fellow who sort of had his name on the door and he had three sons, Tim, Matthew and, and Paul. And, um, and yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty wild. You know, there was, there was, um, uh, I used to sit next to Tim and we'd share a, like a lazy Susan sort of, um, device that had the, the seat screen on it, which was the trading platform that we used. Um, you know, basically it's, here's a phone, go and do your best to try and generate some business, which is a 21 year old as I was, was not the easiest thing, but it certainly was just threw me in the deep end and you either sink or swim and sort of, you know, managed to build something. It, it probably helped that we were coming into the sort of dot-com boom um, and there was lots of people and, and Telstra had sort of not long been listed and so there were lots of retail investors wanting to speak to someone um, about how they get involved in all of this and it was a bit of fun. Because what was the – how did you buy shares <laughs> back then? What was there um, for a retail investor? Was it was that like the teletext – era and all that or when yeah so teletext was a way that a lot of people got their information about what share prices were because yeah. it wasn't you didn't well it was just coming in then the e-trades and 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 comsec and these sort of things where you can probably get some of that information on your on your um computer screen but but you know the bandwidth and the the internet speeds and all that kind of stuff was pretty diabolical so it was pretty basic stuff so people would pick up the phone and want to talk to someone about what they should be doing um and you know you'd then sit down with them or or you know conduct phone conversations where you construct portfolio um sort of uh, advice um and yeah you'd, you'd come up with strategies to try and you know buy and sell stocks for profits um we'd uh, in, in that organization we'd have fairly limited amount of research available in-house so we'd have to go and source research or do our own reading to come up with our trading ideas or just you know use the grapevine to find out what other people were doing in the markets and what you know what were the sort of you know hot investment thematics and all that sort of stuff. Um, I was pretty young and you know I, I had very little to lose, so I I gave it a crack. Mm -hmm. And then after about four years, I sort of you know uh, got an opportunity to start with a new group that had been around for only about 12 months before my arrival, which was Euros Securities. So there was a bunch of people that um, were sort of, you know, in their 30s that had sort of uh, left Patterson's as it was then, or Patterson or Benet, I think it might've been called then. And they'd gone down the road and started up um, Euros Securities and basically focused on West Australian based mid caps. Um, they were very research focused and they were about trying to be the eyes and ears for sophisticated investors and institutional investors who wanted to invest in WA-based companies. They um, made sure that they had um, very strong relationships and a very strong understanding of the assets and the people behind these companies. Your mate that you speak to um, uh, regularly from Precision, Andy Clayton was one of the sort of early people within that group and he was a fantastic analyst during his time at, at Euros and he, he sort of I think personified what the um, theory behind the business was all about and that was mm -hmm. to basically send you know people with real knowledge of in his case the mining sector in to go and meet these companies to see their assets to understand the potential and then to articulate that in research and then to distribute that research to the dealing desk so that they could go and you know sell good ideas to their client base and it was a really good model and i really enjoyed it and it was a very young dynamic group i was you know 
one of the youngest, but um, but the, the guys that were at the top were probably only 10 years older than me. So they had everything to, they had a lot of skin in the game and they had, you know, every, everything on the line to ensure that they, you know, had motivation to succeed and they did. So were they, they were invested in everything they were researching and pushing in a way, were they? Or yeah, were they- well, they were certainly invested in, so Euros is and was a, a public company. So they had substantial shares within their own business. And for that business to succeed, they needed to get the stockbroking side right. So, um, you know, they um, they made sure that the horses that they backed in terms of the stocks that they, you know, recommended as buyers um, were, were going to, you know, deliver a good outcome for their clients. Otherwise, you know, you're only as good as your last trade. And they, they did make a lot of good calls and then subsequently, you know, you build confidence, you build a larger client base and you get the opportunity to raise money for those clients, those corporate clients, um, the, the companies that you're, you're doing the research on. Um, they pay you back with the opportunity to participate in those equity capital market sort of opportunities where really that's the cream, that's where the profit comes from um, for, for, for broking businesses is, is that sort of, you know, five or six or whatever it is percent that you get on on the capital raising as you sort of clip the ticket. So um, yeah, it was a great it was a great group to be with, and, and I'm really fortunate that I you know I, I'm I left on good terms with those guys because I decided that I wanted to start this business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some eighteen or nineteen years after I arrived at Euros, uh, it just in order to scratch an inch and to make sure that I sort of you know had, had I've fulfilled something that I kind of you know wanted to try rather than sort of, you know, just sort of stick at the, the, the same thing for my whole career. So, um, but I couldn't have been happier um, being within that group and making some lifelong friends and having some incredible experiences as well. So, um, yeah, that, that's a fairly short summary of, mm, of it well, all. Well, like if you go back to the start when you first, when Euros first started, which is essentially when you went there. Yeah, it first started, I think, in, in late 2000 and I arrived exactly a year later. I think so, I arrived December 2001. Because that, like, in this current market, you got, like, the main players in, well, WA anyway, on the sell side, you've, you you got Can- you got Euros Hartleys, which is obviously we'll talk about it when they become Euros Hartleys. you got Canaccord, you got Argonaut, like, they're your big, you know, broking research houses where all the information's coming yeah. from. Who was around then when Euros first started? Yeah, well, I mean, Patterson's, so they've become Canaccord. Yeah. We're probably the next, you know, most substantial group. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, Macquarie had pretty substantial broking business then uh, as well um, within Perth. Um, and there would have been a lot of others. Now, is it now Macquarie Macquarie do the research for Morgan Stanley? Is that how it works, I think? Uh Macquarie don't really have that retail broking presence anymore. They've sort of got, I think, I'm no expert, but mm. they've got sort of financial planning, but they've they've got um, corporate sort of you know, investment banking rather mm. than sort of that pick up the phone and talk to a, a retail investor uh, about you know portfolio construction or specific stock opportunities. So. Mm. Um, who else was around, mate? Um, there would have been a lot of other groups that you know maybe you know don't really exist anymore. Um, there's because there's always been a lot of sort of you know mergers, consolidations, fly by night, you know broker movement and that sort of thing. So there were groups like uh, Kirk Securities, Montagues, um, there were Saw James Capel. 
Um, you know, these days, none of those groups have sort of stood the test of time or they've been gobbled up or, or, or something like that. DJ Carmichael's was obviously one that was a pretty substantial group on the terrace then as well. Um, they were very old, um, established um, Perth stockbroker. Um, Ayers Reid, um, I think they got they got sort of uh, um, gobbled up by Macquarie. Um, so, yeah, a lot of them that were sort of household names at one point. DJ Carmichael has morphed into Shaw's. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when, when Canaccord took over Patterson's, was what were Canaccord before they took Patterson's? Were they... Well, Canaccord is, well, Canaccord is a is a Canadian investment bank. It's yeah. a, a Canadian and North American investment bank, yeah. and so they were probably active in in those markets and probably in in Europe as well. So they they use this to get into the Australian market. Yeah, I, I I think that Canaccord had probably hung out their shingle in Australia before they they took on Patterson's, but they obviously have a a substantial financial you know clout. Um, it, globally and so you know taking on a group like Patterson's in Australia was you know very doable from a balance sheet point of view. So take us through the young days of being an analyst when you first went to Euros. What- I wasn't an analyst I was a dealer. Sorry a dealer. Yep. What what do you do? Not not let's say nine to five. Yeah. Map the day out. Oh, so okay go from seven actually because seven's when the stock market opens yeah. over here. Um, go from seven o'clock. Yeah, a dealer. What does a, a dealer in his twenties well, do? With the greatest respect to my to my um, broking friends, um, th- there are harder working people than stock than than retail stockbrokers in the world, and I'm finding that out now that I'm a small business owner. That perhaps <laughs> I didn't work as hard as what I thought I was, but but you do get up early in Western Australia, so you've got to be in the office for that sort of meeting that you have with the analysts where they provide you trading ideas. Uh, typically, it would be around 6.30 in the summertime and 7.30 when the market opens a little bit later in the wintertime. Um, but, yeah, 6.30 is a pretty early brisk start for someone that, you know, has to get out of bed and get themselves into the CBD from wherever they might live. And I typically like to ride my bike, you know, from where I lived um, into into work. So, yeah, you usually have the lights on, um, on, your, on your pushy when you're coming in. And then you'd sit down and you'd receive those ideas and messages and and those analysts are very good at at putting their ideas over persuasively and in in a very short concise way and and that's quite a good way for you to to take those messages out and onto the dealing desk and and uh and then you communicate them to your clients over the phone when you know if and if and when you agree with them so um yeah you 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 then have the bell ring at not the that's metaphorically the bell would ring at at um, seven o'clock or eight o'clock in the winter time, and you'd spend the rest of the time looking for opportunities, reading announcements, talking to clients, often um, uh, reassuring them if if things were sort of <laughs> a little bit um, uh, bearish or yeah. you know things going down things. red, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then trying to come up with ideas to um, make you know make your clients money you'd have to sift through uh, all of the the stocks that you know you felt like you you um um you knew about um well you have to sift through the the ideas that the analysts were presenting to you and actually come up with of you know 
50 different buy recommendations that were being generated in-house, you really could probably only focus on a handful, maybe five or six, and then really channel your energies into getting to know those companies. There'd be lots of in, lots of meetings where, you know, um, executives would be coming through the door and presenting their stories, and that was the yeah. revolving door day in, day out, going into meeting rooms, going, having cups of coffee, going into an audiovisual theatre and receiving um, presentations, uh, asking questions. You get You get... You know, really good at asking questions when you've heard some of your older, more experienced colleagues, or in my case, some of the the fund managers that worked with us alongside the Euros team um, in the West Oz Funds Management Division. Again, you you know the uh, the, the team at Precision, uh, you know, Dermot Woods was one of those guys that was mm-hmm. always really good at asking probing questions. And the more you you sit alongside those people, the more you understand. Um, you know what makes a good share investment, and and the sort of assets and people that you need to back to get the right results. Um, and you know it is a sink or swim business. You know you you've got to you've got to deliver day in day out. Um, you know you have to be you know finding opportunities. You have to be making your clients money. You have to be um, looking for ways to you know uh, open up doors for capital raising opportunities. Because um, that's the that's, you never sleeps. That's what they are. Anything to get a capital raise happening. Is yeah, but the what, right one though. Yeah. Because if you why if you, the why the right one? Well, because if 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 I pick up the phone and sell you this great opportunity to invest in company X Y Z, and you do, and it doesn't go well, then the next time the money's not there. Yeah. So, and that's not to say you can have a hundred percent success rate, and of course you can't, particularly in these mid-cap opportunities and things that are exposed to commodities and whatever. It's just like you've got to you've got to accept the fact that some of them are going to, you know, not work out. But you have to have a good enough strike rate for people to want to back you in. Otherwise, you don't have a business. Mm. So, if you don't have the confidence in the in the um, in the client on the other end of the line, then you may as well pack it up. So when when you say clients, all the people that you're talking to on the phone each day, who are these clients? It's not your mum and dad investors, well, I assume, or what? For me, it was this, a bit of what everything. Is this network, right? It's a bit of everything. So it it was it was it was mum and dads, and it was it was people that you know were when I first started out were parents of my friends or yeah. friends of my parents. So someone that you knew had money. Like, Someone that I knew had an appetite for shares, yeah. yeah, and then I'd I'd try and get in front of them and present them ideas. And and so when you're you're doing that, like like even in this modern age, people that are doing that, is that all off market transactions? Like it's not not a yeah, it's not through Comsec bloody brokerage transactions. Like are they presenting? these offers say for raisings it's all off is it all off market transfers oh, the, the, the raisings well uh, but even just normal when you like when you're dealing when you're buying and selling daily. things yeah no that, that's basically buying and selling through the asx is it yeah so it's basically you know coming up with a with an idea for a listed company so you buy shares in the screen at the moment at 20 cents and hopefully they'll go up to 30 and we'll sell them and we'll get pockets of the difference so uh, uh you know, high net worth people or even just people like your sophisticated investors, are they dealing with people like yourself back in the day as, yeah. as a dealer yeah. as they're effectively working as their Comsec or their NAB trade? They're saying, well, you can buy this right now. Well, this the, is the broking firm has the license to operate on the ASX. Yeah. So in the same way that Comsec or uh, um, yeah, uh, NAB trade or whatever it might be, but those, those um, groups don't provide you advice. Um, so it's yeah. basically um, it's a, a full advice broker is someone that can provide you ideas 
and also execute the trade. So you were executing the trade for yeah. them and then you got the brokerage fee That's right. for that. So in the day-to-day broking is basically there's a there's a there's a set fee, you know. How much was it any different to going through Comsec like if you It was more ex- expensive. Yeah. Yeah. How was, much how much is it like so it cost me 20 bucks to buy shares through Comsec. Yeah. If- so it could it could be more like uh, and you know, this is sort of you know via negotiation, but often the the standard fee was sort of around one percent. So yeah. if it was because oh, if, it if it's a bigger amount, it goes on percentage, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So if you if you you know twenty thousand dollar trade would be two hundred bucks. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to cobble together a few of them during the course of the day to kind of you know walk away with reasonable day's earnings. Um, were you on Were you on commission or yeah. piece rate or? How did that work? There was Were a, you very, on a flat rate or a flat rate then plus the yeah, but it was a start? very like if you had to rely on the retainer, you you would be starving. You know, so if you come in hung over and tried to like as we called in the morning, fuck the dog for the day, um, you, you you didn't get any money. No, in fact, I can remember, I can remember going home on the bus when I was first starting out, and you know the, I don't even know whether or not I. would Back then, I, I had a fallback, in you know, but I can remember going home with the bus and looking at all the people on the bus and thinking, you know what, I reckon everyone else on this bus has made a dollar today except for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when you don't when you don't do a trade on a day, like we used to call it the donut, you know. So if you went home with a donut, it was a pretty miserable sort of feeling. How many? How common were they? Uh, in the early days, I suppose. I, I, I mercifully, I didn't have too many, um, yeah. but. Um, Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to continue. But what about in like your downturns when people are offloading shitloads of shares? Are they so? That's not such a bad time from a brokerage point of view. But yeah, what it does to... is it, it it sort of destroys people's confidence in wading back into the water. Yeah. Although I must say, I never did more business than in March 2020 when the world was exploding with COVID, because. I don't God, know. It went I back think down a lot of four thousand ASX two hundred was down to in the four thousand. It got 000. absolutely creamed. Yeah. But there were a lot of people that had been sitting on the sidelines for some time that I I heard from that I hadn't heard from in years, because you know a lot of people realised that you know by reading you know um, historical accounts of what happened in nineteen eighty seven or you know um, during the dot com bust or even probably back to the depression that. When these, you know, the Warren Buffett call about, you know, be fearful whenever everyone's greedy and greedy when everyone's fearful, mm. a lot of people did want to take advantage of share prices that had been in good quality companies that had been decimated. And they they were all really well rewarded if they did time it right mm. by getting in when panic stations were, you know, going through, you know, the roof. So, um yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I suppose that was a time in my, in my career where I accumulated a lot of different contacts over the course of 20-odd years. And a lot of them were wise enough and had been around long enough, sort of had a few grey hairs like me, to realise that this is probably more of an opportunity than a risk. And um, and so, yeah. And the, the flip side of that was that there was people that were wetting their pants and wanting to sell everything immediately. So... We were doing crazy amount of business. Yeah, and the, and the best thing about it was that the, yeah, like I say, those people that took the risk ended up you know getting a real taste for for you know reengaging with the market again. How, how long does it take to get the network? Like when you're young, when you got the people to 
ring and oh, god, I, those people yeah. you're talking to are it'd be all around the bloody world. I'd assume, like, yeah, how mate, long I does used it take to, to build that. I used to crap myself because you'd, you'd sometimes be talking to people on the other end of the line, and you know that the people that you're trying to sell a proposition to know ten times more about what you're talking about than what you actually do. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So you it take, which is probably why it was good that I was sort of a young kind of you know. I don't know, a confident sort of kid um, because I think if I was sort of, you know, more like I am now, I, I, I may not have had the balls for it, you know. I may I maybe sort of didn't have, wouldn't have had the nerve for it. But Because um, what, as in like you're young, you're like, I've got nothing to bloody lose, just well, yeah, yeah, the, well, the just, gift of the gab, you'd say. You know what it's like, mate. You, you know, at a certain age, you just think you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof and mm. you just have a crack. But, you know, that you take enough knocks, disappointments, and you know you start to get you know, start to second guess yourself. It's sort of it it is harder after you've got a few battle scars. I think. Mm. What what about the the different roads you can go down? As you said, you you can go down the analyst road. You can go down the dealer road. Corporate advisory. Corporate advisory, like say within a someone on the sell side. What dictates which road you go down? Is it where you end up, or do you have a choice, or is it what interests you? Yeah, Some I people think it's what interests you and different and, ones. And, and where your skills lie. For me, um, you know, I, I I liked, and I still like talking to people about about um, opportunities in the, in the investment space. Um, and and yeah, I, I liked the opportunity to sit on the dealing desk. You know, talk to my mates that were sitting around me. Um, about what was going on with the footy or, you know, have a look at what's going on in the, the test match or whatever, mm. uh, while at the same time keeping my eye on the screen and looking for opportunities to make money for my clients and making friends amongst those th that group of people as well. I like well, how you put in the crickets on in the background. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, that's livid. That is livid. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean- you go into a dealing room and the, if there's an Australia playing in a test match, you know it's going to be on the screens yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rather than Bloomberg or CNN or whatever it might be. What, what's the uh, where's the coin in the if you're going to go down that road for anyone that wants to get into stock right? Geez, if this podcast goes to shit, I'm going to eat someone up for a stockbroking job. I reckon. Yeah. Where's the? I where, think the people that make the most money are the people that are involved in the capital raisings because that's what generates the most profit for the firms. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think um, I think those those guys get rewarded fairly um, for for bringing in the big chunks of, of, of cash that generate the profits, mm. um, and that and but it is a team effort. I mean, to get a capital raising away, you know, you need to have the analyst that's you know generated the research. Um, you need to have a lot of people that have you know done the work to. Um, to, to buy the stock to indicate to that company that you are worthy of the opportunity to help them raise money to indicate that you've actually brought meaningful shareholders to their share register and you speak for them um, and yeah you need to have um, you know the, the the sort of that that personable relationship and trust from the management in those companies um, that you're going to do the right thing after the stock's been issued you know it, it's no good you know, doing a capital raising with whatever broker it is only for them to day one start selling the stock down and, you know, not supporting it. Because um, don't the, the brokers usually take a piece of each capital raise, do they? They or? don't necessarily. Um, I mean, 
some of the uh, the problem with that is that there are all sorts of conflicts of interest. Yeah. You know, um, so a lot of the time they don't. They just take a fee in cash. Sometimes you might see that there's options or some other equity component to the fee. And sometimes in the case of the joint that I worked at at Euros, because they had sort of a couple of listed investment companies that were you know, running up to $250, $300 million sort of portfolios, they would actually invest. Now, there were separations between the funds management group and the stockbroking group, but at the end of the day, they were fairly well intertwined. So um, there, there was always that, and that was a that I suppose that was that was a, a selling point for Euros. It was basically say, look, Westos likes what you're doing. If you come and do the capital raising with us, we can say that they'll be participating in it. I don't know. Look, I, 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 mm. yeah. Well, when did Euros become Euros Hartleys? Euros Securities become Euros. Hartleys? A little while after I left, yeah. so it was proposed. Because uh, who I think were Hartleys? Sometime Hartleys. Well, Hartleys was once Hartley Poynton. So, um, a, a, who was a, a, a legendary kind of West Australian um, corporate figure. I don't know. I don't actually know when he was around, but I think that that was probably established sometime around after the war or something. I'm not sure, but we have to look that up. Mm. But, um, and they were, Euros and Hartleys were really um, the, the number one, number two, Pat Patterson's were in there as well, but they were probably the the, the two groups that competed as hard uh, as anyone with each other. And so the merger of those two groups, basically, you know, you went from eating each other's lunch to working collaboratively and bringing, uh, I think, like-minded people together um, who had, you know, um, really strong networks into the West Australian business and investment community. So who would you, looking at your work, your been in the space for a while. You worked for Euros, you know, Patterson's. Like, like two of the biggest ones you hear of over here is Euros, Hartley's and Cannon Cord. Yeah. What's different about them? What's their – can you – are they – Are they? do they have their own niches? Are they well, pretty I similar? Well, I mean, Cannon Cord is a, is a, has got a national and international footprint. Um, Euros, Hartley's is, I suppose, parochially West Australian. Um, so – that's not to say that Canaccord doesn't have substantial capabilities within Western Australia, but they have got enormous amount of deal flow from across their entire network in Australia and, and overseas. And I suppose it allows them a little bit easier access to capital in those North American markets, which is obviously some of the stuff that you talked about with Pete, because they've got headquarters there. Um, whereas, you know, I suppose the, the Euros Hartley's guys are yeah, they're parochially West Australian, and that is an advantage. Um, as much as it is, it sort of limits the sort of the scope of the business. I think it's um, there's a real benefit in being focused in 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 this patch. And there, you know, as you know, in the mining sector, it's a very capital hungry. Um, there's a lot of money to be raised. Mm. Yeah, and then so. Sounds like a job where you'd be pinging every day. Like it's a, you'd be, it'd be go, 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 and it'd be very, as you said, you, you don't sell anything, you don't get paid much. It'd yeah. be um, very, well, it's results driven. You'd be, yeah, sounds pretty intense, but exciting. Yeah, exciting and then there, so you, you'd be have that six hours of the market being open for you to try and maximise as much value out of those 
you know, minutes where the market's open, where you, it's available for you to trade. And then, and then the market had closed, you'd do some administrative stuff, you'd sort of tidy up what you needed to do in the back office, and you'd take meetings either with clients or with companies um, about new opportunities. What about, did you have to do a lot of, I guess, functions and meeting of trying to meet your high net wealth people trying yeah. to get that network of because I assume you're you've got to call that person first to get them to deal with you usually to do the trade yeah, yeah. so what about growing that network yeah well you that? try and grow it from your own client base and you know the best the best work uh, is always the work that comes via referral or the best new opportunities mm. because it means you're doing something right and someone else has spoken on your behalf in recommendation for you um, but yeah we'd also do yeah client functions um, to make sure that the existing clients were, you know, feeling like they were, you know, receiving enough love, mm. um, and then there were all sorts of other strategies to try and target people, you know, as new clients. So you'd always be trying to become aware of, you know, who were the meaningful investors in that sort of mid-cap West Australian space that we weren't talking to already. Um, the institutional guys would always be aware of the the new funds that had popped up and what their mandates were in relation to, to investing in the small smaller end of the market. Um, we'd always be you know trying to identify high net worth individuals that you know had an appetite and demonstrable appetite for investing in our sort of products. Um, and yeah, you know, there was a realization that there are a hell of a lot more high net worth individuals, hell of a lot more people on the east coast of Australia than there is on the west coast. So you try and identify. At the beginning of my broken career with Euros, I was able to um, identify a lot of key shareholders in companies that we had buy recommendations on, and I basically got in touch with them. Managed to get in touch with. Them. It's a lot harder now with privacy laws in relation to public company registers and stuff but back then it was it was it was a little bit more loose and i was able to build an incredibly strong network in sydney and melbourne and brisbane and noosa um, noosa there'd be a few up there yeah right? probably i don't yeah did have a client in noosa actually yeah. um and yeah it, that was that was amazing so i used to get on a plane and go over and you know every year or every six months go over and and sit down and have you know cups of coffee lunch dinner yeah um you know drop in on people with their offices it was great yeah it, it oh, was, that sounds like fun yeah it was good yeah it was, and and you know you just you get so much more out of sitting down with someone and talking about anything but stocks family life you know sport travel whatever it might be that interests you um then you actually do you know buy you know, pitching a, an investment proposition. It's but that, nothing uh, like pressing the flesh, you know. Oh, and that, that well, you'd learn it now with the, our, our business roles. It's not about uh, chucking a business card down and talking, putting a pitch. Like you got to, it's about, it's about demonstrating you're a decent person. And you got to learn, you got to know, you want to know about their family, their what's yeah. their interests like, and everything. If they're going to, they're not uh, slapping a business card down and giving a pitch isn't going to change their mind whether they're going to deal with you or not. It's the all the other shit. I yeah. think, and they and it might take a few months for them to take action, but that's for sure. That holds a lot more stead, doesn't it? Yeah, no, that's for sure. And you've driven that, obviously, that whole thing is just driven into what you've done with this venture. Yeah, yeah. Well, this venture is just all about leveraging that you know, idea about communicating good company stories to investors, mm -hmm. but sort of doing it on a different platform. Yeah. 
Ah, good stuff. Oh, mate, I'll tell you what. So when I make ten million off Labyrinth, I'll be getting all the euros and guys <laughs> ringing me up because they'll yeah. they'll know I'm a high net worth guy now. Yeah, uh, that's right. Oh, I can't wait for that. <laughs> <laughs> then you you'll get a bit what's called diversification in your portfolio, mate. Yeah, no, nah, there, no. Nah. Well, listen, I heard a good view of someone. Um, uh, when they were talking about diversification, I think it was it was on that equity, mate. So they were saying, look, you know, you can buy twenty stocks, and then you now you're considered diversified. But you you could know absolutely bugger all about the twenty because you bought twenty, you've diversified, or you can buy two or three mm. that you know shitloads about. You go to their AGM, you get you talk to the CEOs and all sure. that, and you're nearly better place sometimes to have less, know more about them than have. More that you know nothing about. Yep. Oh, I thought that was interesting. Oh, no, it supported my thesis anyway. Yeah. So, right, but there's certain wisdom to that, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> right, mate. Well, cheers. Well, that was a good bloody insight into the life of a broker, a life of a dealer, a life of yeah. an analyst, and everything. Uh, and I learned a lot there too, especially about like what a dealer is. If you're trying to find them on a Friday afternoon, <laughs> this is Friday the, afternoon. the beach or the golf course, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Right, mate. Thanks very much for that. That All was right. bloody good fun. Who's next? Nic- Nicola's next, isn't she? Yeah, well, Nicola or Steve. I'm thinking I want to get real up close and personal with Steve. I think he's going to love that. The artichoke, lots yeah. of layers. Yeah, no, he'll, <laughs> he'll be he'll be good. I, I, I can't wait for that one. <laughs> right, Cobb, have a good weekend. Thank you, mate. Cheers. <laughs>